Okay, today we're doing chapter two of the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. And the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series is four chapters, but it's divided into two sections. Section A is why do we need a greater knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit? Section A is why do we need a greater knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit? The um, the section A is divided into two chapters. The first one we you've already heard is uh, last time is the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, that He's a person, that He has all the attributes of deity. He's not an it, and so forth. And we looked at seven statements about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they're more those statements were more theological statements or a theological overview, uh, you might say theoretical overview, of what, how the Holy Spirit relates to the Father and the Son. He is their active representative in the earth. Today, we're going to actually look at the actual activities that out of that, out of that framework of his, his uh, the theoretical or theological ministry, out of the fact that he represents the Father and the Son, he does certain things throughout history. And we're going to look, uh, today's title is called The Activities of the Holy Spirit in the Bible and Beyond. We're going to look at the Old Testament activities of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the New Testament activities of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at the activities of the Holy Spirit since the, the close of the New Testament canon uh, in the late 60s AD and after the death of the apostles. And it's possible that John may have lived, John the Apostle, not John Gray or John Weiss, uh, may have lived into to as far as 90 AD uh, or so. But uh, there, there is an idea that we're going to deal with today called cessationism, which, which believes that the Holy Spirit stopped doing these activities after the death of the apostles. And uh, we're going to look at his activities after the death of the apostles th through uh, many, many documents of church history. Now... Um, before we get started, I just want to I want to just place this whole series the being baptized in the Holy Spirit in a little bit bigger biblical and historic context. Uh, first of all, I want us to understand the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament scriptures. In Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says, "If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you." Matthew's version says. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what he's saying is casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit is a, at least one sign or one indication that the kingdom of God is here and now and in our midst. Um, if we look at that in the context of Jesus' overall ministry, most theologians or commentators on Scripture will estimate that somewhere between one quarter or 25% and one third or 33%, uh, you might, you sometimes hear 40%. The truth is you can't really quantify this idea, but what they're getting at is, uh, you know, a considerable portion of Jesus' ministry was healing the sick and casting out demons. Uh, in fact, uh, I've often mentioned that there's such a thing called the Jefferson Bible, and uh, the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson was committed to the, uh, the, the idea that came out of the Enlightenment, that there is no spiritual side of life. All things are physical, chemical, and material. 
And so he thought the ethical teaching of the New Testament was was good and important, but it, we need to get rid of the the myth that we need to get rid of the myth of of Christ and miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit and these kind of things. So he actually took the portions of the New Testament that um, didn't have any miraculous element and and published them as the Jefferson Bible. And Jordan happened to find a copy of it on my shelves this past week. And uh, he was over hanging out, and he was like, wow, this is really a thin book. And I was like, yeah, because there's not a whole lot left. In fact, if you're having trouble with your reading the New Testament in one year, you might get a Jefferson Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It's much shorter. (laughs) It's very short. Because if you take the miraculous elements out of the New Testament, there's there's not that much left. You've actually cut it in in uh, the Jefferson Bible is actually less than half as long as the New Testament itself. So if you're trying to cut down on uh, cut down on these things, then um, then um, it, you know the, the uh, no. I'm just kidding. That's probably not a good way to go. Read the whole New Testament. Uh, Luke twenty four forty nine. Jesus said, "Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you." But stay in the city until you are clothed with with power from on high. That same uh, phrase is used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, we read uh, portions out of Luke 24 and and Acts 1 in the the scripture readings today. And, And what I want to understand is that phrase, the promise of the Father, harkens back to many Old Testament promises that God would put his spirit in his people and, and it's really not all that clear from Scripture. It's really something you sort of have to experience to know, I, I guess. Uh, but it's clear in the Old Testament that the promise is to put his spirit within his people in, is, is, uh, is in a different, better, uh, more complete way than what happens in the Old Testament. Because there are many Scriptures in the Old Testament that say so-and-so was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, when Jeremiah 31 through 35 says, uh, but I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and it goes on to describe many portions of that that are very important, uh, in, in, that he'll put his law within us and so forth, and, and it says that I'll put my spirit within them. Uh, Joel gives us prophecies about in the last days I'll pour my spirit out on all mankind, and Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that this that was the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That was the beginning of a period of time called the last days. And it was the beginning of his pouring his spirit out on all flesh. And it actually was considerably done on all nations and all flesh because over 17 nations are mentioned by name that were present and got filled with the Holy Spirit that day at least representatives of those nations, not everyone in the nation, of course. Um, and in fact, the, in the New Testament, uh, over and over again, it says that the gospel was proclaimed in the whole world. Uh, this, is with, this is how the, the New Testament perceives the, 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 uh, the preaching of the, kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God that, that, that was something that was accomplished in the first generation. Uh, that in some, in some way, in some sense, the Bible's view is that the the uh, the gospel of the kingdom was preached in all the earth 
before uh, before Nero's persecution started. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to, to realize that in heaven, everything, everyone, every being, every place, every presence is filled with God's Holy Spirit, right? You probably, there's no place in heaven that's not filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no one in heaven that's not filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit, and it's God's goal to bring his kingdom to the earth now. That's what he told us to pray for and work toward. And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says the, the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power, demonstration of the spirit and power. So um, my whole reason for doing this series is, to, is to, to ask the question, is this phrase being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which appears seven times in the New Testament, each time telling us that Jesus would be the one baptizing the Holy Spirit, is this something we should reconsider as a stepping stone into a regular, constant uh, filling and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And we're going we're gonna to look at cases of people being filled with the Holy Spirit, Old Testament and New today, among other things. Um, a second reason for this series is just the current spiritual climate in Western culture. Uh, and that's both the climate of the world around world, those outside the church, and the climate inside the church. Um much of the the church that was formerly, you know, Europe was at one time called Christendom. Almost all estimates are that 4% of people or so throughout Europe are now nominally Christian, and perhaps 1% or 2% of people are actively Christian. About the same number of active Christians as in Japan, or same percentage of the population as in Japan, one of the least Christianized nations in the world. Um... That's an amazing fact, if you think about it. And uh, many people say uh, that approximately 4% of people under 30 years old in the United States go to church now, and that we look like we are heading within a generation towards being what Europe was. And uh, that's one reason, as you'll hear next week, that our focus is Grace Christian Fellowship. I'm all for getting old codgers like me to know the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and and if you, and certainly you will not be discouraged if God calls you to start a ministry to nursing homes or pe old people like me. However, our focus of the officially ordained ministries of our church are going to be after uh, teenage kids, uh, just below teenage kids, just above teenage kids, and college kids. Why? Because the Bible is always about Abraham's Isaac. It's always about the seed. It's always about handing the kingdom to the next generation of God's leaders. And so um, we will never put our second best or third best ministers in charge of the children's ministry or the Kids Rock House or uh, the campus ministry or, or any of those things. Our, our best ministers will be in charge of all those because uh, that's the most important front to fight the battles for the kingdom of God. Huh? Well, anyway, we live in a time that uh, Western culture as a whole 
is full of uh, unbelief. And uh, they say that as a culture declines, it gets subject more and more to skepticism and cynicism. Uh, And if you really study the ideas of the Enlightenment and how those ideas have grown into this supposed dichotomy between science and and faith and between the the physical realm and the realm of the spirit and and all these kinds of ideas um, all the way into from the enlightenment to what to modernism our culture is ex, is ex, is increasingly anti-supernatural now actually some people believe that there's some hope and i believe that that if we learn to do church in the more new testament biblical way uh, one of the things we're going to find, and that's what that book that we're asking everyone to read this year, by the way, Ancient Future Faith, is all about, is how to get back to a more biblical way of doing Christianity. And that will be, I believe, will cause postmodernism to become the church's greatest opportunity yet. Because one of the things about postmodernism is they are at least open to the fact that there's a spiritual dimension, although they mostly find it through witchcraft, the occult, and, and so forth. Um but as anyone who was part of the occult revolution of the 60s and the 70s with the drugs and the occult music and, and different things knows is that sometimes uh, opening the door to the reality that there is a demonic kingdom and there are real demons and so forth ends up backfiring on the enemy because it causes people's eyes to be open to the fact that there's a spiritual dimension and they choose uh, Christ instead of the alternatives. And... Uh, and uh, one of the things you see all through Scripture is God causes Satan's very plans to always backfire and blow up in his face because God is sovereign, Satan is not. And uh, <laughs> as simple as that. Now, um, there's also an idea called cessationism that uh, is still in the church to some degree. For the la- for a large degree, cessationism in its purest forms is we uh, is somewhat dead today in favor of what they call the third wave. Cessationism is the idea that the Holy Spirit ceased doing prophecies, speaking in tongues, uh, healings, miracles, discerning of spirits, casting out demons. The, the activities of the Holy Spirit ceased with the apostles. Uh, and they were they, the, the Holy Spirit continued his ministry, but it was narrowed down to only convicting people of their sin and drawing them to Christ and regenerating them into the kingdom and sometimes giving them a sense of guidance. And after that, the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything else. He never crosses that line into the normal things he does throughout the Bible. Uh, you know, he somehow, like, he got fenced in, and there were boundaries, and, and he can't go past this point. Now, any, any surface study of the Bible will help us see that the limitations on the Holy Spirit's activities all through the Bible have to do with the faith of the people of God not with the desires of what God wants to do. Um, that's, that's just silly, to honestly, to believe that the Holy Spirit ceased doing certain things in certain times, and he's, he was one way one time and another way another time. He doesn't change. And so, therefore, his, nothing about him can change. We can't say there's a God in, the God. in the Old Testament, God came to us this way, like in justice and and so forth, and he comes to us in the New Testament in mercy, and, and God, like, you can't separate God up like that. Okay, you, when you pray for an outpouring of God's Spirit and visitation, 
you're praying for Ananias and Sapphira to happen and people to be swept up into the kingdom in a sense of awe of God's presence. You're, he comes when he comes with all of it. He doesn't come in parts. Okay, he's not a chicken McNugget or anything. Parts is parts. You can't, you can't uh, make, divide God up into parts. Okay, so as a whole, cessationism has kind of died in, since the 1980s in favor of a, a theoretical openness to the Holy Spirit, but a de facto cessationism. In other words, what's happened in the third wave is almost all Christians will say, well, we think God could do these things, but we don't want to pursue that. We don't want to focus on that much. And we want to focus on Jesus. That sounds a lot like the, the Corinthians when they said, I'm of Paul and I'm of Paulus. But then the real spiritual ones thought, I'm of Jesus. But actually, they were, they were just as off base in what they were saying as the I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas crowd. Uh, but we're not going there this morning. But um, it's, it's really similar to that whole mindset. It's basically saying, well, we want to focus on evangelism and and. Well, there's, there's no place in the Bible that evangelism happens without signs and wonders. So you can't really separate those kind of things out like modern man has been able to do as we've gotten more and more propositional and theoretical in our view of truth and less and less uh, just worshipful or, or you know, acknowledging the, the power and the glory and the mystery of God as we've tried to dissect them all up in perfect theologies and so forth. So, um, what's again, there's really, even though um, there are still some groups that are hard, fast cessationists, that is getting to be fewer and fewer and fewer, but in fact, many are now uh, theoretical believers in the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, but de facto cessationists saying, well, you know, if God wants to do those kind of things around here, he'll do them. The Bible makes it clear that you have to pursue earnestly spiritual gifts. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts, yes, 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Pursue them, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, and so forth. So um, if you want a really good study on all this, there's a book suggestion in the notes there, Quenching the Spirit by William de Ortega. It's not a book for everyone. It's 300 pages, approximately 50 footnotes per chapter. It's very done as kind of a academic doctoral dissertation kind of flavor. Uh, there's several people in our church that have read it. It's, it's really good. And uh, so if you want to delve into that more, please do. Now, again, the two sections of this series, uh, first, section A, why do we need a greater knowledge of the experience of the Holy Spirit? Chapter one, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and today, the activities of the Holy Spirit. Just so you know where we're going, the second section is, is called Following the Biblical Pattern. I struggled with, I want to keep it short, but I, I want, struggled with like experiencing the biblical pattern or um, restoring the biblical pattern. But we are followers of Christ, and we are followers of God, and therefore we're followers of his word and the models and patterns he's put in his word. Okay, so uh, patterns for the tabernacle, patterns for the church, patterns for the gospel. We want to see models and patterns in the scriptures and follow them. Uh, we don't just want to theorize about them. We want to be in conformed to them. We want to follow them. Now, um, chapter four then is, is once you have 
gotten through the first three chapters, if, if you come to a place where you see, yes, I understand that being baptized in the Holy Spirit will be a stepping stone into my experiencing the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life more fully and more regularly, which will affect my worship, my hunger for scripture, my boldness in witnessing, uh, you know, uh, the, the outflow of spiritual gifts from my life, the increase of spiritual fruit in my life. All of these things should be the result. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit potentially opens the door to being filled with the Holy Spirit on a much more uh, powerful and consistent basis, more regularly, more frequently, more often. But it is no guarantee that you will be there if you don't do the things that, that cause one to follow Christ. If you don't take up your cross and deny him, if you don't have spiritual disciplines in your life, if you don't have openness and honesty and accountability in your relationships, all of the things that cause us to walk in the reality and the presence and power of Christ, uh, all the baptism in the Spirit does is gives you the potential for those to go to a whole other dimension. They don't necessarily take you there. And uh, one of the one of the interesting developments that I've seen in the last 25 years is I've seen more and more people get baptized in the Holy Spirit who don't go forward with the things of God. I've seen people get delivered from demons who don't go forward with the things of God. And that used to be... Uh, much more infrequent, but it's becoming much more common. And I believe it's partly because of the gospel we've preached, the spiritual confusion we've brought people into. Uh, I think a lot of that takes several times years to get through. You, you, you've got to get in a healthy group that, that's, that does community and worship and sacraments and all the things of God in a, in a, in a healthy and, and radical, committed, zealous way. And it takes so, and you got to study, and you got to read the scriptures, and and you know one of the one of the products of modern culture is people don't read much, neither scripture nor supplemental things such as Christian books, and and you can't expect that you're going to grow up in Christ if you don't change that habit, if you don't become a, a reader, I I can't help you grow. In fact, one of the reasons I'm always encouraging people to read the Bible is I'm selfish in a certain good, godly way. The more you get on fire and grow in the Lord, the easier my job gets to be in your life. And in fact, you will follow the pattern that Jason and John and John Gray and other people have followed, where you're not only less work for me, but you're helping me do the work. And so I'm like, yeah, read the word more, read some more books, because, and then I'll give you more jobs. And John and Lee are experiencing that right now. Uh, praise God. <laughs> they're like, thank you, Jesus. When I, when they see the phone, it's like Greg Weiss calling. They're like, uh -uh, I'm not answering. That. No, <laughs> he's gonna. All right, so uh, Jason figured that one out years ago. No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, let's move on. Hopefully, Jordan can edit some of this stuff out. Um, today, we want to look at the activities of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, New Testament, and after the, the close of Scripture. The canon was complete, which I'm as conservative as you get. I actually believe all the books of the New Testament were written prior to 68 AD. I don't, thought, I don't believe in the ideas that Revelation wasn't written until the 90s and all this kind of idea. I believe all the New Testament books were written prior to the persecution of Nero in 68 AD. I'm old-fashioned. 
I believe what the church believed throughout the centuries, not what the modern higher critics have in their great hubris has caused us to, to think. All right, so let's start by looking at uh, the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, that's a difficult thing because the word for spirit and breath and wind, there's actually two Hebrew words and derivatives thereof. I cannot pronounce them because, like, the first one is ruach, which you, but you have to kind of roll the, put a kind of an R and a in the C. It's like ruach, <laughs> you know, something like, I can't pronounce Hebrew words, uh, but you have to kind of, like, bring some phlegm up with it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so it's there on your page. And uh and then Nishima is, I'm totally butchering that one. If you want, you know, uh, there's a nice online tools now with Strong's Concordance where you can actually listen to someone who actually knows how to pronounce the words, pronounce them, but then I still can't pronounce them. I do that all the time as I did with both these words, and I still can't pronounce them. So um, the, the definition of those words means spirit, breath, or wind. And one of the problems is that sometimes when it means breath or wind, it actually means spirit because the Bible is full of imagery and it wants to give us imagery, word pictures, and so forth. So in, say, Genesis 2, 7, where it says God formed man from the dust of the earth, he's not, he didn't actually just take only dust. <laughs> you know, He took all the physical chemicals, but that's a metaphor. It's a symbolism. Uh, and, uh, and then he breathed into them which is the second of those two words, the neshama, the breath of life, and man became a living soul or a self-conscious being. And so, um, even though the, the translators translate those, that, those twice in that passage, he translated his breath, he breathed into them uh, the breath of God, he's really referring to the Spirit of God. So, and, but, he, but it's purposely using word pictures and imagery as the Bible does for communication. So, um, that, you know, that makes it uh, difficult. And then also when it's talking of human spirits, evil spirits, uh, and so forth, it uses the same word. So not all the 350 plus references have anything to do with God's spirit. Nevertheless, uh, we want to look at some patterns. What I want to give us is four major categories of the Holy Spirit's activities in the Old Testament. This is not an exhaustive list. I, I could have came up with six or seven categories. Some of these, uh, you, you might argue, well, gee, you ought to split that one into two categories. So just this is just to help us get a broad overview of what the Holy Spirit does, not just theoretically and theologically who he is, and, and what his relationship to the Father and the Son is. But what do the Father and the Son have the Holy Spirit do? What do they send him to do? Well, first, he creates. The Holy Spirit is always involved in creation. He gives life, and he stains life. He births. The Holy Spirit is involved in all conception, all prenatal development, and all birth of all things, including plants, animals, and humans. The Holy Spirit uh, was moving in Genesis 1-2 on the surface of the waters. Then God said, let us 
make man in our image according to our likeness. Three times God refers to himself in the plural, talking to himself. Uh, Jordan was talking to himself over at our house last night, helping out with some chores. And I said, that's okay, as long as you don't start listening to yourself. But uh, with God, he talks to himself because he's three persons in one being. And this verse here is actually a foreshadow. This is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talking to each other. And they all were active in creation. Read John chapter 1, and you'll see uh, both the role of of the Son and the Spirit in creation. So that's the first thing that God does. God uh, breathed into man his nostrils, the breath of life, and uh, that refers to a spirit. Job 33, 4, Job understanding this, says the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he's saying the Spirit of God created me, and the Spirit of God gave me life. Uh, A second thing that that the Holy Spirit does throughout the Old Testament is he speaks the word. He speaks the word through people, through prophets. He fills people. He anoints them. He raises people up as prophets, judges, priests, and kings, and speaks and works through them. Some examples are in Numbers 11.25. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him uh, upon the 70 elders. That is the Holy Spirit upon the 70 elders. So God comes down in a cloud. He speaks to Moses. He takes up the Holy Spirit that he had put on Moses, and he distributes it among 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, that is the 70 elders, they prophesied. But interestingly, they did not do it again. In in 2 Samuel 23, 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Now, look up the context, but that was David summarizing his life and ministry. Uh, He's saying, uh, one of the things that David, of course, is most famous for, is he is the number one author of the Psalms. There's also Sons of Kor and Sons of Asaph, and one is written by Moses, and uh, at least one is written by Solomon. I'm trying to remember if there's... And if there's more by Solomon. Uh, but David is the primary author of the Psalms, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Don't you like that? I like that. Uh, now, I'm actually going to give us, Peter in the New Testament is actually trying to sum up the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and he has several verses in both of his epistles, I've just chosen two, that talk about what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament. The first one is from 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. And it says this, And to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What Peter is saying here is all the prophets, starting with Elijah and Elisha through the whole major and minor prophet tradition, all of these prophets sought to understand what the Spirit of God inside them was indicating about the coming of Christ, his sufferings, his glory that would follow the sufferings, and so forth. In other words, 
part of uh, why you need more of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit will constantly cause you to wrestle with God, to seek God. To, you know, the Bible says that I, one thing I've desired that I shall seek, this is David, of course, speaking, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord and that I shall inquire in his temple. The Holy Spirit causes you to do that. The Holy Spirit leads you to fellowship. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit you were baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit will cause you to discern that God is in his word and, and your hunger for the word will grow. The, the uh, Holy Spirit will cause you to discern that the, the, the God dwells in the praises of his people and your hunger for worship will grow. I hate to always pick on John Gray, but I'm always saying the great examples because I just love John Gray and all the things God's doing in his life. But it was interesting that uh, after John Gray got baptized in the Holy Spirit, we were having at that time some morning prayer meetings and just a few of us came, were coming, like Leah and Catherine and John and me and a few Jason sometimes, different things. And John started bringing these great old hymn books. And he was like all excited about singing these old hymns. And they, and I, and I love old hymns. <laughs> they often have better theology than the modern stuff and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, you know, but that was, that was just, to, that's to be expected. There's no, it's no accident that what they called the worldwide praise and worship movement grew out of the charismatic movement. That wasn't like a, oops, never saw that one coming. That was a, a cause and effect. The, whole, the Holy Spirit, the deep calls to deep. And one of the things, the Holy Spirit will, will actually cause you to sing in your heart with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You'll want deeper community. You'll want, you'll want less see you on Sunday uh, you know, shallow, uh, don't hardly know the people around me kind of relate. You want better, real relationships that are effective in Christ. So that's what Peter's saying. This, the Holy Spirit uh, that was in the prophets, all of them. Really, Moses is, is a prophet, uh, as well as lawgiver and judge and uh, many things. Uh, David is a prophet. Elijah, Elisha, the, the, what we call the major prophets, the minor prophets are among the prophets. There's more than them, of course. The, and the spirit of Christ within them is seeking to, to understand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that follows. That's what the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. 2 Peter 3, 2 says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, this is, uh, this is a basic thing to New Testament understanding. Read Hebrews 1 and 2 to get this. Uh, what we just read in Peter, John 15, 26 and 27 will give you this. Jesus says in John 15, 26 and 27, we covered that verse, of course, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will bear witness of me, Jesus is saying, and you will bear witness of me. The basic idea of New Testament thinking was that the scriptures say, in several places, mostly in the law, this is important, that, that in, in, the, in its judicial declaration of how you know truth. And there's, a, there's a branch of theology called, a, or a branch in, in philosophy also called epistemology, which deals with how do we know anything for certain. 
You remember Rene Descartes was trying to doubt everything he could, and eventually he said, well, I can't doubt that I exist because I'm thinking. I think, therefore, I am, you know. I'm trying to doubt everything I can. Not exactly a healthy posture toward life in general, but, uh, <laughs> but philosophers can be a little weird, but uh, <laughs> even without taking acid sometimes. But, uh, you know, so uh, in biblical epistemology, in the law, it says every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. You'll know. See, you weren't actually allowed in a capital case. You weren't allowed to put someone to death on the basis of one witness. Because one witness can be wrong a lot easier than three witnesses can be wrong. Now, you still have to, the first to plead his case seems just. You have to impeach the witness's character, and, and that is try to, and you have to question their motives and different things like that. But the bottom line is that... Um, you want three witnesses whenever possible to the same fact. And the entire New Testament idea is based on that, the, that Christ was attested to by the prophets for generations before he came. The Spirit of God within them was searching to know the Christ in the, in the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow his sufferings and all the ministries of Christ and all the aspects of who Christ is. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what Hebrews says. God spoke to us in the times past in many ways, by many things, and so forth. But the second witness of the New Testament is the apostles. Christ gave apostles. That's why in Acts 1 it was so important for them to replace Judas, because 12 is the number of government, and Israel was always governed by 12 patriarchs over the 12 tribes, speaking of the the, the completion of the people of God and the government of God. And Jesus wanted 12 specific witnesses to his resurrection, even though there were 500 witnesses. There were five, 12 particularly anointed ones called the apostles. And in John 15, 26 and 27, he's saying, you also, verse 27, will bear witness of me. But the most important witness, this is John 15, 26, is the Holy Spirit will bear witness of me. You know, I'm so amazed that, that a, a lot of us have ideas that, oh, I couldn't go sharing the gospel, and we're so afraid of man, and so forth. But mostly we're full of unbelief. We think it wouldn't work, which is a really demonic, skeptical, evil idea. That, you know, Jesus, when he, when he threw away the wicked, you know, when the, the, you remember the parable of the talents? The wicked one didn't develop himself. He didn't do anything. He said, I knew you to be a hard and evil man, and therefore I hid my tent in the ground. Faith always takes chances. Faith gets out there. And one of the things that, that you a reason you have for faith is the sovereignty of God. It's amazing to me that certain theological paradigms that believe in the sovereignty of God have somehow degenerated in post-World post War II times to doing nothing about evangelism, or abortion, or speaking the word, or anything, because that, that's crazy. Because if God is sovereign, then by his Holy Spirit, he can do whatever he wants. And the Bible tells us over and over again that the Holy Spirit came to bear witness to Christ. He bore witness in the Old Testament prophets, he bore witness in the, in the New Testament apostles, and he bore, bears witness to the word of God when you speak it now.
of all people, people who believe in the sovereignty of God, should be evangelistically more active because we know that all those appointed to eternal life will believe. Ours is just to obey. We don't have to figure it all out or whatever. We don't even have to understand the mystery of how someone gets drawn into the kingdom or convicted or whatever. We just have to do what God says. You know, I, I love to study worship. I could have a seven-part series on worship. But the bottom line is, you, you worship because he said so and because he's worthy. And it's awesome. And he's awesome. And I, and I don't really know much about it other than that, honestly. Other than I have like seven messages I get you know what I'm saying it like the bottom line is he is awesome he's worthy he tells us to worship and he gives you the Holy Spirit so you'll want to worship so you'll be glad when they said to me let us go to the house of the Lord that's the most important part of the meeting well they're all good all right so part C the Holy Spirit causes new birth in the Old, Old Testament. What? Oh, oh my God. This idea you get, or people, when Jesus breathed on them after, after the uh, resurrection, he breathed on the apostles. Was that when they were regenerated? Not, on, honestly, the, the signs of biblical regeneration are always that God writes his law upon your heart and your mind. And you have faith in the word of God. And Jesus said, a time will come when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear will live. And he means those who hear in the sense that he's talking about in Matthew 7, those who hear and do my word and follow my word. When they came to, to they thought he'd gone a little too far, his mother and his brothers, and he came to get him. And they, he said, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? These people who hear the word of God and do it. That's my family. That's who was born of my spirit. That's who's my sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. Uh, the holy the the Old Testament Christians were saved by faith in Christ, in who was to come. They were f- saved by faith in Genesis three fifteen and every other prophecy of the coming of Christ that unfolded, and they knew that God Himself would provide the Lamb. I love when when Abraham answers Isaac, and, and, and they, he, Isaac's like, well. Where's the lamb for sacrifice? <laughs> Little did he know. And, and it doesn't say God will provide for himself. It actually says God will provide himself the lamb. God, God himself is the lamb. Uh, Old Testament Christians were regenerated by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, 10 through 12, in case you doubt me, was actually written in the Old Testament. Trust me on this. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> it's a Psalm of David. And he uh, is also said, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, Jesus pointed out that David had already died and was buried. So this happens before the first advent of Christ. Create in me a clean heart. Create. Create. That's what regenerate. He's saying, cause me to be born afresh anew, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me. Sustain me with a willing spirit and the Holy Spirit in our spirits is what makes our spirits willing, by the way. And so in Exodus, uh, speaking of calling, I'm, I'm doing calling, equipping, empowering, even giving military power and strategies and so forth. You see, I've called him by name. He's talking about, oh, hold you. Or, oh, I can't say, uh, uh, I had to cut some of it out so to fit on the page. So I've, so I've called him by name, dot, dot, dot. I've filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood that we may work all kinds of craftsmanship. Now, I, I'm going aside too much, but this is an important one. <laughs> My rabbit trails are sometimes better than that. One of the one of the things that caused Western culture to advance was the was this idea right here that was rebirthed in the Reformation called the Protestant work ethic. Okay, it's been actually again post, uh, really kind of post World War One, but starting in the eighteen nineties through through now, when as this idea of the the pietism that there's the there's the holy calling of being a pastor and we hire our pastors after they go away to this ivory tower of school and different things like that rather than through discipleship raising them up and training and equipping them within the church but it it's been this whole idea that that's a holy calling and being a janitor is not God didn't. God specifically talks about this guy in Scripture two times. You can also see at the end of there it says, "See Exodus thirty-five, thirty through thirty-two. It's about the same guy in the same verbiage. He, he, why does he make that part of the eternal Word of God? Because God, by the Holy Spirit, equipped him with all kinds of craftsmanship. See, God equips people to be nurses, chemists, musicians. Uh, Carpenters. It's been a joy working with this guy who's doing the work at the, because he's a spirit-filled Christian who loves God, has good character, and has some pretty cool skills in craftsmanship and uh, can handle working for somebody as picky as me. Uh, so that's just as holy of a calling as being a pastor. And this, you know, one of the things that got developed out of dispensationalism and pietism was this whole, you, you see it in almost every evangelical, fundamental, charismatic, or Pentecostal denomination. I got a calling from God. And it's interpreted very individualistic, not, not in, in the corporate, corporate expression of the body of Christ. It's interpreted in a very being glorious way that, that flatters that whole spirit of Babylon. Let us make a name for ourselves. And it's, in, it's interpreted as spiritual things are the good callings. Not if God wants you to be a nurse, a plumber. If God wants you to be a plumber and you're a pastor, you're in sin. And in fact, frankly, the best pastors are always people who did well at being plumbers or whatever <laughs> for maybe 30 years, 40 years. You know, one of the reasons I'm glad that I was out of the ministry for uh, for a dozen years, and then even as I started a church and got back in the ministry, wasn't on staff or took a salary for so many years, is because, you know what, going to work every day and making a living and all these kind of things, 
helps you understand the reality of where everyone else is living. You know, uh, my expectations of what people might be able to do in terms of reading, service, all these kind of things is a little bit more realistic because I'm not 27 anymore. I'm 57 almost. Not quite. Thank you, Lord. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, and, and yet, you know, this whole, one of the things that we do with this whole send people away to Bible school mentality and then raise them up right away is we have all these pastors who've never done anything really real. And they're deciphering people and theoretical think that which is theory to them. This idea that those who can't do it should teach and those who can't do it should pastor is, is not biblical. It's nonsense. I don't want pastors who, who can't cut it in worldly jobs as part of our movement, that's for sure. Anyway, how did I get onto that? Out of Exodus chapter 31 and 35. I got there honestly. All right, moving on. Uh, boy, I'm going to have to skip some of this. Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Uh, judges, the sons of Israel, cried to the Lord. The ra Lord raised up a deliverer. Othniel, the son of Canaan, Caleb's brother, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Over and over, you can see, uh, I've, I've listed a bunch of scriptures there in Joshua where every one of them says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so. Spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so. And I purposely included Deborah just to shake up your theology a little. And Samson. <laughs> you know, like Samson, the Spirit of God anointed Samson, and he didn't have much character. His character stunk. Was crooked as a politician. He had scoliosis of the character. Uh, and God still, you know, God still anointed him, and he did great things by the power of the Spirit. So deal with that. Um, that's been, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing. There's ne not necessarily a correlation between being filled with the Spirit and doing miracles and having good character, which is part of what Jesus is getting after in Matthew 7. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? And, the, you know, the gifts of call of God are irrevocable. The wrong person in the wrong context, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, if you'll let him, will help you develop the fruits of the Holy Spirit and Christ-like character. That's part of his ministry. But not everyone who God empowers by the Holy Spirit cooperates with the Holy Spirit in that part of his calling in your life. There's no guarantee that when you get filled with the Holy Spirit that you're going to cooperate with God as he takes you to the cross. Just so you know, like when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the agenda is the same as it was be, uh, when you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He's trying to kill you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, precious in his sight is the death of his godly ones. That applies in the Spirit to our character as well as to martyrs and so forth. All right, moving on. I, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on Samuel. Then he came on Saul. Uh, it's interesting. He came on Saul, and Saul was changed into another man. That's so interesting, and he prophesied, and he was numbered among the prophets, but then it says the Spirit of God departed from Saul later. Can't develop all that today. Fourthly, the Spirit of uh, the Holy Spirit works miracles, healings, raises the dead, and demonstrates miraculous control of nature all through the Old Testament. And I've just listed some of them in your, in your outline there, but 
but less, less than half that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And of course, we all know there are miracles that weren't, didn't make it into the scriptures. The, the patriarchs, when they gave both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all prophesied as they gave blessings for the future, prophesied for generations to come. Joseph's dreams at the beginning when he was 17, and Joseph's interpretation of dreams to Pharaoh were by the Holy Spirit. The ten plagues that came on Egypt, including the last and final one, the Passover, which becomes the center of, of Israel's worship and and, and so forth, and it's really in, in Christ, our Passover is the center of our worship and why we worship at the table and so forth. Um, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna coming on the ground, which literally means what is it? <laughs> um, water coming from the rock. I have, uh, of course, you can see that in Yellow Springs too, but not necessarily where it wasn't coming. But then it was coming because God said, strike the rock. The 70 prophesying that we already mentioned, the sun standing still for Joshua. Now that's, when you talk about influencing nature, I mean, you're talking about, you know, some awesome stuff. The sun moving back 10 steps. And uh, for, what was, was, uh, who did the sun move back 10? Hezekiah, was it? That the sun moved back 10 steps? I didn't put that one in the notes, but anyway, the um, all the judges were raised up by the Holy Spirit. Naaman the leper, Elisha, remember, Naaman uh, comes and want and he's and, <laughs> and I love it. Uh, by the way, you, uh, this book I'm reading on miracles throughout church history. This was very common uh, among what was called the Desert Fathers and so forth. When people would come to see them, they would actually hear from the spirit that they were coming and what they wanted ahead of time and send their messenger to meet them and say, go home, you're healed. <laughs> and that's when Elijah sent, sends a messenger to, he doesn't, here's this important diplomat that Israel's having some really problematic relationships with his country and so forth. And Elijah sends a servant, just go tell him to wash in the, <laughs> in the, uh, anyway, so, so he's all ticked off, but his servant, uh, humbles him and says, you know, if he'd have told you to do some great thing, he, you would have done it, right? And so he does it, and he's healed, right? Um, Elijah with the widow's jar. Uh, what Elijah with the raising the widow's son from the dead. Elijah with the prophets of Baal. I love that. Interestingly, the New American Standard even waters, waters that passage down. Because when, when, of course, when uh, the prophets of Baal have are supposed to be lighting the altar and so forth, and nothing's happening, and, and no fire is coming down, and so forth, Elijah starts to actually mock them. There's 450 of them, and just one of him, and he's like, where's your God? And he actually says, does he have to take a leak? <laughs> is he out in the, to the bathroom? And uh, I think the uh, the New Living Translation says, is he going to the potty? <laughs> uh, but the New American Standard says something like, is he otherwise occupied? So they... they uh, Usually the it's usually the NIV that translates it more uh, more politely, but they use something like "is he relieving himself?" I think is the NIV. Anyway, <laughs> just thought that was uh, part of the message we throw in for the boys. <laughs> Little boys need to know about these things. I used to tell my my sons all this kind of stuff because you know that's one of the problems with the whole overly legalistic, overly effeminate Christianity. There's a reason why 69% of churchgoers are women. Because churches don't talk about Elijah 
challenging the and mocking him by saying, is he taking a pee? <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to say that kind of stuff from the pulpit. But you have to admit, when you're a guy, you, you like that kind of, you like to even torment your mother with those kinds of things. <laughs> That's part of being a kid. All right. I, I always like to tell the story of uh, Ehud, who was a left-handed man, and he drove the sword into the king of Moab called Eglon, and, and it says that it sunk in till the blubber uh, covered the handle and his refuge ran out. <laughs> in other words, he, he stabbed him through the intestines and the poop came out of the hole. <laughs> you should love to tell that to my sons and then, and then pray over them as they went to sleep. <laughs> uh, no wonder they grew up to love guns. Uh, Anyway, let's move on. You know, all kinds of miracles in the Old Testament. Now, let's get into the New Testament. Believe it or not, I can do this very quickly. Uh, <laughs> keep in mind, I've listed some scriptures there, we'll not go there, that tell us very clearly that the New Covenant is a better covenant. Okay, now, uh, three things... Now I'm going to have Jordan edit some of this stuff out, so we'll get this get this tape down to a, at least one 80-minute CD because so, we're going to use this for people who are interested in the Holy Spirit in the future. We'll put it on our website and all that. Um, the ministry of Jesus, we've talked a little bit about that already. Jesus d does everything that the prophets do in the Old Testament except with some distinctions. One is more frequently by far. Uh, secondly, he heals people born blind, which the the in the in the biblical mindset is actually a greater miracle than raising someone from the dead, because raising someone from the dead requires you to bring their spirit back to them and reunite their spirit with their body, whereas healing someone born blind cause uh, gets involved with you have to be the God of creation to do that because you have to create an eye. Someone born blind. Their eye either neither fully develops or it begins to deteriorate. So when you heal someone born blind, there's what uh, some theologians call a creative miracle involved. And when in the New Testament, when Jesus heals people born blind, there's a couple different places where it says no one uh, has ever done this before. No one in the Old Testament did that. Um, next, he expelled demons. Now, it's clear from some of Jesus' statements and from the practices in the book of Acts that there were Jewish exorcists who expelled demons. But it's not talked about in Scripture, and we really don't know for sure when that practice developed. Was it during the uh, intertestamental period or, or what have you? But Jesus regularly and often uh, always cast out demons. By the way, read carefully when you're reading about that, because one of the things you'll see is the New Testament gives us some of the most dramatic cases. But over and over, check Matthew 8 and 9, for, for instance, both chapters. Uh, over and over, it says that he healed everyone and cast out demons out of many. In gatherings where it's clear there were thousands of people. He healed every sick person at the meeting and cast demons out of many? 
That should lift our faith. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. Um, Jesus uh, walked on water. He cleansed lepers. So, he, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the calming, when Jesus calmed the water, uh, causing the stand, he, he, he exercised dominion over nature that was supernatural, just like Joshua, just like uh, others in the Old Testament, Moses and so forth. So he does all the same things. Um, however, more frequently and more clearly, especially when it comes to prophesying, if you really study Matthew clearly, one of the things you'll see is that Jesus is quite consciously standing on the shoulders of every prophet of the Old Testament and quite clearly endorsing their message of him and their promises that, that Israel would be judged and the kingdom would be taken about, um, from them and that they would be scattered among the nations. And all the prophecies of Deuteronomy 28 were fulfilled to the T. Read Josephus's The Jewish Wars. Between 67 and 78, the, no per, people in the history of the world has ever undergone what the Jewish people went through those three and a half years. And everything that God promised if they rejected him uh, to do throughout the whole Old Testament was done to the Israelites during those three and a half years. Hundreds of thousands of people died in, in hundreds of different ways at each other's hands and at the hands of the Edomites and the Romans and so forth. It was a time of tribulation like the, the earth has never seen and hopefully would never see again. So, uh, the New Testament, let's continue. The book of Acts, uh, just things I want to point out. The book of Acts is primarily the continuing ministry of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear in many, many statements in the Gospels that he is going to continue his ministry by pouring out the Spirit on them. He does so at Pentecost, and that and and Peter stands up and says, "This is the this is the fulfillment of that phrase, the promise of the Father. This is what Joel two is talking about. This is what Jeremiah thirty one is talking about. This is that greater filling of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that that." that was going to be special to New Testament believers. And he, uh, it unites what Jesus also did, priest, prophet, and king in, in every person. See, in the Old Testament, the, the priest and the prophets uh, and the king, no one was more than two of those things in the Old Testament. Because it was a foreshadowing of Jesus could be, is the only one great enough to be all three of those things. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not a king, but you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a prince of God. You are Jesus' younger brother and sister. You are Princess Leia <laughs> from Star Wars. No, uh, you know, you're, you're Prince Jason, Prince Samuel. And... You are, you are priest of the Most High God. You are princes of the Most High God. And you are prophets of the Most High God. 
And the baptism in the Spirit makes all of that powerful and enacted. Um, the book of Acts, all through the book of Acts, they continue to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did, only much on a much wider scope. Do you know that in the first century that Thomas made it to India? That, um, I believe it's Andrew who made it to where what is uh, today Sweden and Switzerland? Or Sweden and Norway? Um, the, you know, we the, the, the book of Acts focuses on Paul conquering the cities of the Roman Empire, but many of the original 12 disciples and their disciples left and went all over Europe and all over Africa and all over Asia. The nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are, are also mentioned in the New Testament. Now, why would God mention them if they were going to cease? He said, he's telling Christians for the centuries to come how to use these nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they are all supranatural. Well, the last thing I want to do is, is just do after the apostles, and I'll maybe just make a separate CD of that later. And despite the fact that it's late, though, I'm going to give you a little bit of that. Uh, I want to do my conclusion first. and then So I'm just wanting us to understand that the church needs to recapture all the manifest presence, dynamic ministries, and gifts of the Holy Spirit to enable us to follow after and continuing the ongoing, never-changing ministry of Jesus Christ. Please think on that. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, there's a book uh, that I would encourage you to get called Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the History of the Church. It's It says by Jeff Doles, but it's really compiled by Jeff Doles. It's just quotes out of many Christian sources, original documents called the Antonician Fathers, the Nicene Fathers, the Post-Nicene Fathers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the Venerable Bede's writings, so forth. He's using, uh, he's using hundreds of available documents of church history, and it's really the kind of book that you can... It, I, one thing I like is there's all kinds of different books. This is a coffee table book. It, it's also a book you, you might want to read the whole book of. But it's really a book you could consider putting on a coffee table, putting in, a, in the bathroom, in a place, because it's really the kind of book that lends itself well to just randomly opening it and reading. But what he does is he, he, is he uh, just does, there's a table of contents, and I have it, by the way, on my Kindle. Uh, but the, it basically starts with, he, he does a section of, of the apostles and so forth that's mostly miracles that are, are, are recorded in the New Testament. But after that, he starts with what was called the, the Apostolic Fathers. The Apostolic Fathers were guys like Polycarp, who had actually been discipled by John. Polycarp was a disciple of John for many time, for many years, and therefore he's one of our best sources to understanding what John is writing about. And he goes through Irenaeus and so forth. The, um, the church leaders of the, of the second century are, are sometimes called the Patristic Fathers, or the Apostolic Fathers. Patristic Fathers is actually somewhat redundant. But I thought I'd give us just a... Do, do we want to hear these? I know it's getting late, but I, I think some of these are worth hearing. Um, 
This is from uh, a guy who I purposely picked out because I like his name. Gregory the Wonder Worker <laughs> from from 213 to 270. It's like the Smucker's Jelly Principle. With a name like Gregory, it has to be good. All right. <laughs> Two, uh, he lived from 213 to 270. It was converted to Christ under the teaching of Origen. Many of you probably know who Origen was. And later became Bishop of Neo-Caesarea. The section title, this is from, there's a whole lot of miracles recorded of him. This is just one title uh, in, in the... Antonician Father's book uh, called Abundance of Signs, Wonders, and Miracles. But where shall I rank the great Gregory in the words uttered by him? For by the fellow working of the Spirit, the power which he had over demons was tremendous. And so gifted was he with the grace of the word for obedience to the faith among the nations, that although only 17 Christians were handed over to him, he brought the whole people alike in town and country through knowledge to God. He too, by Christ's mighty name, commanded even rivers to change their course and caused a lake which afforded a ground of quarrel to some covetous brethren to dry up. Moreover, his predictions of things come to come were such as in no wise to fall short of these of the great prophets. To recount all his wonderful works in detail would be too long a task. By the superabundance of gifts wrought in him by the Spirit, in all power and signs and in marvels, he was styled a second Moses by the very enemies of the church. Isn't that interesting? Thus, in all, the, in all that, he through grace accomplished alike by word and deed, a light seemed ever to be shining, token of heavenly power from the unseen which followed him. Now, here's one, one of the things I want you to, if you've read When the Church Was a Family, and hopefully everyone has read that book, because we asked the whole church to read that book a couple years ago. And uh, if, if you've understood that, and you've understood, and you've begun, or if you've read the last chapters, uh, probably no one but me has gotten to this point. But the uh, the book we're asking people to read this year called um, Ancient Future Faith. Thank you. The last few chapters talk about how people were evangelized and discipled into the church in the third and fourth and fifth centuries. One of the things you understand is like you actually had to, if you wanted to become a, a Christian, you first had to come before the pastors, and you had to announce your uh, desire to be a Christian. And they would lead you to renounce all evil, the devil, his kingdom, and his works. And you had to you had to start by renouncing all them. Then you went through a whole year's classes to get prepared. They they had water baptisms on Easter Sunday every every week, but you were you had gone through a two to four year process before you were accepted to be baptized. One of the things that we have that we struggle with today is getting people to the point where we feel like we can cast their demons out with the, the reason they, they, they cast all their demons out before their water baptism because they started with saying, you can't live any other way. Now, why, that, why that's important in this context is the early church for the first four or five centuries, what drove people by the thousands into the church was not the superior moral, superior philosophy and theology and, and good apologetics. It was the superior character and lifestyle of the Christians. There were plagues, and the Christians stayed when everyone else ran and went into sick people's homes and so forth. We could go on and on. It doesn't make any sense when you read something like this when there are literally, I could have chose a hundred different accounts of different godly men that, that, that there are written accounts of, of this kind of thing in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. 
It doesn't make any sense to say they're all lying. But there's no logical manner. Either these things happened or every one of these Christians through the centuries has been lying. Now, when you consider that cessationism is based on one passage in 1 Corinthians 13 where they've ripped it completely out of the context and reinterpreted it to say something it doesn't say versus these kind of testimonies. There are this, this book is a long book. It would take you a couple months to read it if you were you know, working full-time and stuff. Here's Augustine of Hippo. I chose him because he's, uh, the, he, of course, lived from 354 AD to 430. The teaching of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, has, has greatly influenced the theology of both Catholicism and the Reformation Church. He's one guy that both the Catholics and the Reformers say, yeah, he's our guy. <laughs> he is the father of Protestantism, and, and, and he's one of the fathers of the Catholic Church. And they both claim him. In his classic work, The City of God, Augustine records numerous miracles. Here are a few excerpts. Now, I chose Augustine not only because of his fame, and importance in church history and theology, but also because he was a cessationist in his early ministry and then was convinced that that was erroneous by his own investigation of hundreds of miracles throughout the Roman Empire. And in the city of God, he records 70 miracles and then goes on to basically say, if I, if I, I would never get to publish this book if I recorded all of the miracles that we've well that we've documented and that we've uh, searched out whether the witnesses were are believable, whether they had character and integrity, and all the things that we've come to know for sure are happened. I couldn't finish this book if I didn't stop at seventy. I have other, hundreds of other accounts available. Okay, but here's one: even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ. We cannot deny. And again, cessationism. The first one, I'm choosing different centuries on purpose. The first guy was in, in the 3rd century. That is the 200s. Augustine lives at the last half of the 4th century and the first half of the 5th century. And he says, even now miracles are wrought in the name of Christ. We cannot deny that many miracles are wrought to confirm that one grand and healthy giving, health-giving miracle of Christ's ascension to heaven with the flesh in which he rose. The miracles were published that they might produce faith. For even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or by the prayers or relics of his saints. Uh, here's just one of them. In a, a, a lady named Innocentia healed of breast cancer. In the same city of Carthage lived Innocentia, a very devout woman of the highest rank in the state. She had cancer in one of her breasts, a disease which, as physicians say, is incurable. Ordinarily, therefore, they either amputate or, and so separate from the body the member on which the disease has seized, or that the patient's life may be prolonged a little, though death is inevitable, even if somewhat delayed. They abandon all remedies, following, as they say, the advice of Hippocrates. Hippocrates, or the Hippocratic Oath guy. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, breast cancer uh, treatment hasn't developed all that much since then. Uh, basically, if they caught it, Quick enough, they, they amputated the breast, and if uh, mastectomy, and if they didn't, they eventually stopped treating it because they felt like the treatments were were just wearing the lady down more, and it was always considered a sentence of death. Um, this lady we speak of had been advised by a skillful physician who was intimate with her family, and she betook herself to God alone by prayer. On the approach of Easter, 
by the way, this is in, during the time period that, that all the new Christians were baptized on Easter every year. She was instructed in a dream to wait for the first woman that came out of the baptistry after being baptized and to ask her to make the sign of Christ upon her sore. She did so and was immediately cured. The physician who had advised her to apply no remedy if she wished to live a little longer, when he examined her after this and found that she who on his former examination was afflicted with that disease was now perfectly cured, eagerly asked her what remedy she had used. Anxious, as we may well believe, to discover the drug which should defeat the decision of Hippocrates. Hippocrates. But when she told him what had happened, he said, he is said to have replied with religious politeness, though with a contemptuous tone and an expression which made her fear he would utter some blasphemy against Christ. I thought you would make, would make some great discovery to me. She, shuddering at his indifference, quickly replied, What great thing! What great thing was it for Christ to heal a cancer who raised one who had been four days dead? Isn't that awesome? Again, you have to get to the point where you, you know, because the, the church understood that people were skeptical from the earliest times. And so they documented these things. They made sure there's all kinds of accounts of we made, you know, we examined their character and made sure they were the utmost character before we, you know, believed their report and so forth. Uh, more, more of Augustine. For I, when I saw in our times frequent signs of the presence of divine powers, similar to those that which had been given of old, I desired that narratives might be written, judging that the multitude should not remain ignorant of these things. Even now, therefore, many miracles are wrought. The same God who wrought those we read of still performing them, by whom he will, as he will. All right, so I'm half done with the... Uh, Here's another one, jumping, uh, jumping two centuries ahead to a guy named St. Cuthbert or Cuthbert. Cuthbert was a monk of Lindisfarne, Northumbria, which is now called England. He was called the Wonder Worker of Britain. It says this, by the force of prayer only, St. Cuthbert quenched the fire.